This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. So you all know me, I almost never talk about celebrity stories unless it kind of crosses into the realm of politics. But I have to make an exception for this story. I want to talk about the slap that was heard around the world. Now, uh, I'm not going to play the video for you. Odds are you've seen it multiple times. I don't know if it violates YouTube's terms of service, so we won't take any risks, but you all know what happened. Chris Rock made a joke about Will Smith's wife. Will Smith subsequently walked onto the stage of the Oscars, slapped him right across the face, and then screamed at him, keep my wife's name out of your mouth. Now, um, I did not watch this live. I had no idea that this was going on. So I log on to Twitter and then I see everyone talking about this. It's trending. Um, and my initial reaction was that it was staged, right? Uh, because this is an award show. Sometimes maybe they'll do skits. And when I saw that Will Smith was laughing at the joke that Chris Rock made, I thought, okay, he's in on the joke. They're both doing this bit. And, you know, Will Smith slapped him so hard that I thought there's no way that Chris Rock would be able to just absorb that blow. Um, and then when Will Smith walked away, you know, he was kind of smirking a little bit. But then when I realized it was absolutely not staged, when it was 100% real, was when Will Smith was yelling at Chris Rock. Um, that's when I realized wait a second, this is actually 100% real. Because Chris Rock's reaction was so bizarre to me. Like if I were slapped in the face in front of millions and millions of people, I don't think that I would be able to just brush it off that easily. Um, he said, Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. And that made me laugh. So I thought, okay, this is all fake. But watching it back, you know, you realize, oh my God, this is actually real. Will Smith just slapped Chris Rock across the face. What do you even say to that? That's, that's insane. Now, I have so many thoughts on this, I actually made bullet points. Um, so, for me, wondering how Will Smith went from laughing at the joke to then getting outraged to the point where he'd physically assault someone on national television, um, I think that Benjamin Dixon had a tweet that really explained it well. He said, I watched it again, and truth is, it looked like Will laughed at the joke himself while Jada was pissed. I could be wrong, but it seemed more like, oops, let me make up for it. Bingo. Bingo. Um, I think that that's what's happening there. Now, I'm going to tell you my thoughts on it, but just to give you a little bit of an update to the situation, apparently Chris Rock will not be filing a police report, although there is this possibility that Will Smith could lose the award that he won later that night. But some have pointed out that Harvey Weinstein, for example, has never had any of his awards revoked for doing much, much worse. So it doesn't seem like that is the best form of accountability. Just, you know, 
at face value. Now, during the commercial break following that incident, Will Smith was apparently talking to his publicist, and there were other celebrities that were seen uh, comforting Will Smith, as Scott Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter explains. During the commercial break, Will Smith is pulled aside and comforted by Denzel Washington and Tyler Perry, who motion for him to brush it off. Will appears to wipe tears from his eyes as he sits back down with Jada, uh, with Denzel comforting Jada and Will's rep by his side. You can also see um, a better image here of Bradley Cooper with Will Smith seemingly comforting him. This is courtesy of Getty. And as I see all of these celebrities comfort Will Smith, as I see him win this award and then get a standing ovation, my thought was, did anyone check in with Chris Rock? Because he just got slapped across the face really hard. So is there anyone that's kind of by his side saying, hey, you're doing okay. You still have this show to host. So, I mean, I, I was just wondering about that. And, and again, I'll tell you my thoughts in a second, but I just want to get through all of this first. Um, my favorite part about this is the insane political aspect that people are trying to shoehorn in. So you, you had Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone suggesting that maybe this was a false flag operation orchestrated by... I, guess the CIA. On top of that, you have Dave Rubin bringing in the supposed woke elements. Take a look. You know, we could also add like the weird woke element of race to this. So it was black on black violence, which people obviously treat a little bit differently. I suspect that if Matt Damon had gotten out of the crowd, very pasty white Matt Damon had gotten out of the crowd and smacked Chris Rock, we'd be, there would be riots in the streets. Oh my God, just shut the fuck up. Just shut the fuck up. Um, you know, I disagree with some of the takes here, but that's the dumbest take. Um, the false flag operation, definitely the, the most bizarre unhinged take. But in terms of my thoughts on the situation, um, okay, the joke was bad. The joke was not good at all. And I feel like celebrities don't even try anymore. Comedians rather don't even try anymore. So uh, Jada Pinkett Smith has, uh, I guess, talked about her struggle with alopecia and she shaved her head. So, you know, it's a sensitive issue. And for Chris Rock to joke about that, it's, it's pretty gross. But then the joke wasn't even good. You joked about her being the star of G.I. Jane 2. What even is that joke? And I feel like comedians nowadays, they just don't try. Uh, there was another joke throughout the night where Amy Schumer joked about don't look up and said, hey, don't look up the reviews. I mean, Amy Schumer, have you been in any movie that's been good ever? I mean, every single thing that I see her in, she's insufferable and overly pretentious. So, I, I mean, comedians just don't try. They don't try and they're insufferable 99% of the time. Having said that though, was that response warranted? No, under any circumstance, I don't care what you say as a comedian, you shouldn't walk up on stage and slap someone. What the fuck were you thinking, Will Smith? And I say this as someone who's been a very huge fan of Will Smith all throughout my life, all um, throughout my childhood. As I was growing up, Will Smith was an idol to me. I was a fan of everything he was in, the Fresh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Men in Black, Wild Wild West, everything. Huge fan of Will Smith. But still, fan or no fan, I can put aside my feelings of him and how talented he is and say, Will Smith, you can't do that. You can't slap someone. Why? What made you think that was acceptable? Now, I don't think that he thought this through, right? It was the heat of the moment. He saw that his wife was hurt, perhaps, or was trying to do 
I don't know, damage control after his wife saw him laugh at the joke. So he walked up on stage, slapped Chris Rock. I mean, first of all, it's bizarre to me that he was able to just walk back to his seat and then enjoy the rest of the show. How was he not kicked out by security? How was he just there after that i mean if it was anyone else who wasn't a mega wealthy celebrity they would have been kicked out like if i attended a comedy show and i walked up on stage and slapped the fuck out of the comedian on stage i would be kicked out i would probably go to jail but because it's a celebrity he can get away with it but what's also bizarre when you introduce this element of class is that well chris rock is also a celebrity and celebrities they look out for their own right it's part of this club this whole thing is like an elitist circle jerk but so was Chris Rock not signaling for security during the commercial break, at least, to get him the fuck out because he just slapped me? I don't want him here because what if he tries to slap me again? I mean, he's very clearly unhinged and I hit a nerve, but I mean, he just slapped me. Why is he still here? If I slap someone, wouldn't somebody, you know, uh, have a question about that or think maybe you shouldn't be slapping someone, but because it's Will Smith, we make an exception? No, fuck out of here. So um, this whole situation is so weird to me and i tried to put myself in will smith's shoes i don't know anyone with alopecia so you know i'd imagine that that would be a really hurtful joke especially if it's made about someone that you love uh but trying to change the context to see if i could rationalize his behavior there so what if i were there in the front row and chris rock made a joke about me that was really homophobic and just not even funny just really gross and below the belt would I still think it was acceptable to walk up on stage and slap him across the face? No, I would not. Because I'm an adult. And you don't fucking just assault people who say things that hurt your fifis. That's not what grown-ups are supposed to do, right? Not okay. Now, you can get me to accept a slap and justify it if we change the context a little bit more. Like, if it was Henry Kissinger on stage, a mass murderer, or Donald Trump... Okay, if somebody walked up on stage and slapped him across the face, I wouldn't care. But when we're specifically talking about jokes and we're limiting it to things that hurt people's feelings, not okay. Not okay at all. Now, I will say that you can tell that Will Smith knew that he fucked up and probably regretted it later on because, I mean, how embarrassing. You know, you react irrationally. You lose your temper and you slap someone across the face. Now you know the following day is going to be everyone talking about this. You're going to look like an imbecile. And, you know, he probably realized that he fucked up. Now, when he accepted his award, he said, love will make you do crazy things. Sure, I think that that's, that's something that does happen. But that doesn't justify what you did. You should be publicly apologizing to Chris Rock. You know, you can say Chris Rock also owes Will Smith an apology because that joke wasn't funny and, you know, this is a sensitive subject for his wife. But to slap someone over a fucking joke? No, not okay. Not okay. And I like Will Smith. But, I mean, in my opinion, this kind of ruins him. He goes down in my book because of this. Because, you know, I always thought that Will Smith was somebody who, you know, was just, he wouldn't do something like that. I always thought of him as this really cool guy, jokey, and, you know, he would be able to contain his emotions, but apparently not. Chris Rock, however, just fucking, I don't know how he contained his emotions. Again, his joke was stupid, but he didn't deserve to be slapped over it. 
and the way that he just absorbed the slap again i've got to i've got to talk about that it's insane to me it's like if you storm into the first boss in elden ring margin and you know you've got no uh you you got a shitty you know weapon you're not leveled up at all and you try to attack Margit. He just absorbs the blow. That's what we saw there. Bad comparison. Most of you won't get that. But, you know, uh, Will Smith was a level one and uh, Chris Rock was a level 99 and you're going to have to level up to actually affect him. Now, I will say that slap was so hard that if Will Smith closed his face uh, or closed his fist and hit uh, Chris Rock in the face, he probably would have knocked him out because that was a really hard slap. And again, we're showing the still image on the screen right now. Not going to show the video, but that was a hard slap. So I just, it's so bizarre to see something like that. Um, I don't know what else to say. I'm obviously against it. I think that violence is not acceptable. Um, and yeah, what else left is there to say? Uh, I think that Will Smith should be ashamed of himself. He should be apologizing to people and denouncing violence um and uh yeah anyone who tries to excuse this sorry this is inexcusable it's unjustifiable again the joke was gross the joke was disgusting but what's worse than a joke is physically assaulting someone you you can't do that that's that's not okay so yeah there's my two cents for what it's worth um bizarre very surreal thing to witness i kind of wish that i was tuning in live because i wouldn't know how much more of an impact that would have made on me but i don't think i've ever watched the oscars live i just feel like it's so boring and i hate celebrities it's like this elitist circle jerk and to see them there in their fancy clothing uh getting people to take pictures of them everyone fawning over them i, I just hate it like it it feels really gross and classist to me but um you know this is one that i certainly wish i would have tuned in for because holy shit that is fucking insane and will smith unhinged do fucking better. What's wrong with you? Arguably the dumbest member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, attended a Trump rally that took place in Georgia over the weekend. Yes, that's apparently still a thing that happens in 2022, even though Trump isn't running for president and this isn't even a presidential election year either way she spoke at this event and she was rambling incoherently about random stuff and then she invoked pete Buttigieg. now what's interesting is that you can tell that she very clearly intended to insult him in a homophobic way but she seemingly mixed up her transphobic talking points and homophobic talking points and she ended up insulting him in a way that just was incoherent and didn't make any sense whatsoever but let's watch and then I'll break it down. And you know what? Pete Buttigieg can take his electric vehicles and his bicycles and he and his husband can stay out of our girls' bathrooms. Yep. Yeah. And only Brilliant. She's very clearly an intelligent individual. And I love how the crowd is cheering as she said that. Said something that makes no sense whatsoever. Was there a cogent point that she was making there? Uh, in their minds, were they uh, listening and thought, maybe this doesn't add up, but I can fill in the blanks and understand what she's trying to say? Essentially, gay is bad. I mean, does anyone in that crowd have any brain cells that work? We need a psychologist to analyze MAGA chuds, more broadly speaking. But either way, she took that insult, first and foremost, in a completely weird direction. She said Pete Buttigieg can take his electric vehicles and his bicycles. And you'd think from that she jumped to the and shoved them up his ass. 
and it works because, you know, you could take this and shove it is a thing that people commonly say, but he's also gay. So, LOL, butt sex. It works, you know, as a homophobic insult as well. But she doesn't take that in that direction. She says, oh, he can take his electric vehicles and you can stay out of girls' bathrooms. What? What does that even what does that even mean? So she's referring to this stereotype about trans women, this uh, insult. It's not even a stereotype, really. It's this um, lie and attack against trans women that really they're cis men LARPing as trans women so they can go into girls' bathrooms and prey on women in bathrooms. Now, that doesn't actually happen. This isn't a widespread occurrence. Trans women are not preying on cis women in bathrooms. Furthermore, Pete Buttigieg is a gay man, so he's not interested in women at all. So is he going into girls' bathrooms? Do you listen to what you say, Marjorie Green, as the words come out of your mouth, or is there just no connection between your brain and the words that come out of your mouth? I, I just, <laughs> she's so stupid. I mean, this is very basic, right? Being homophobic and transphobic is something that is very easy for conservatives, but if you can't even get the talking points right, if you confuse your transphobic talking points for your homophobic talking points, you're just dumber than everyone else in Congress. I don't even know how to respond to this. If she was following reactionary politics closely lately, she'd realize that the current thing to say against gay people is that they're grooming children and they want to teach children to be gay. So if she were to say, and also people to judge, um, you know, keep your, uh, take your bicycles and your electric vehicles and shove them up your ass. And also, side note, you know, keep your gay stuff out of the classrooms. I don't want you grooming our children. Then, you know, it still would be an idiotic thing to say, but at least we would know, oh, I, I see she's she's playing into the whole gays are trying to teach children to be gay thing, right? But she just goes to this, oh, stay out of girls' bathrooms. I don't think he's going to be going into girls' bathrooms, Marjorie, because he doesn't identify as a woman because he's a cis man and he's gay. He's not attracted to women. Even when she's trying to be hateful, she finds a way to say it in the dumbest way imaginable. And there's no intelligent way to espouse hate. But Marjorie Taylor Greene found a way to add an extra layer of stupidity to her hateful rhetoric. It's, it's truly just almost impressive in a way. Because just when you think, you know, she can't get any dumber, she takes it as a challenge. So, I mean, there's not much to say about this. I think that we already know Marjorie Greene is the dumbest member of Congress or one of the dumbest members of, uh, of Congress. It's arguable, right? Because there's people like Louis Gohmert in Congress also. But I think, honestly, she might literally be the dumbest person in Congress. I mean, her IQ is in the single digits. This is somebody who probably eats paint chips. I'm genuinely impressed that she hasn't died yet just by forgetting to breathe or by tying her shoelaces together and falling down and hitting her head on concrete. I just, I'm, I'm impressed that she managed to make it to her 40s or 50s, however old she is, being that stupid. I mean, you have to have some level of common sense to survive, right? But she doesn't have a sufficient amount of common sense to make it this far in life. And I'm impressed that she's survived this long and somehow managed to make it to Congress. Like, this is a member of Congress. She has power. So, you know, if you honestly ever doubted yourself and you thought, maybe I'm not good enough for this job, maybe I'm not good enough for this or that, no, Marjorie Green made it to Congress. If she can do that, I assure you, you can do anything you put your mind to, anything. Anything is possible because of Marjorie Taylor Green.
Madison Cawthorn recently appeared on an episode of the Warrior Poet Society podcast, and he was asked how similar Congress is in real life compared to its depiction in the TV show House of Cards. And what he says had a few people turning heads, and for good reason. So uh, let's listen to what he has to say, and then I have a lot to add when we come back. With it's House about of to get Cards. serious. Yes, I am. With uh, Kevin Spacey, and I forget who else uh, was in it. Uh, but anyway. Really well done show. Very really, well done very show. Very well done show. But it was so dirty, and it was about this uh, congressman uh, who was Kevin Spacey, who was, I, I think it was minority or majority whip. Yep. What, what was it? Yeah. And so, anyway, very, very powerful guy. And it was just kind of like his secret life of all this corruption and power and money and perversion, and it was just dirty. How much, in your opinion, because you're you've been behind the veil. Is this a fictitious show or is this more closer to like a documentary? Is, is it that bad? So I heard a former president that we had in the 90s was asked a question about this. And he gave an answer that I thought was so true. And he said, the only thing that's not accurate in that show is that you could never get a piece of legislation about, uh, about education passed that quickly. And everything else is good. Uh, aside from that, I mean, the sexual perversion that goes on in Washington, I mean, it, being kind of a young guy in Washington with the average age of probably 60 or 70, and I look at all these people, a lot of them that I, I, you know, I've looked up to through my life, I've always paid attention to politics, guys that, you know, it, then all of a sudden you get invited to, like, well, hey, we're going to have kind of a, a, a sexual get-together at one of our homes, you should come. And I'm like, what, what, what did you just ask me to come to? Yeah. Uh, and then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy. Yeah. Uh, or, or the fact that, you know, there's some of the people that are leading on the movement to try and remove, you know, addiction in our country. And then you watch them do, you know, a key bump of cocaine right in front of you. And it's like, wow, this is, this is wild. Okay. First of all, notice how he didn't say whether or not he attended the orgy. Really sus there, Madison. Um, second of all, Madison Cawthorn is a compulsive liar, but assuming he's telling the truth and this isn't that difficult to believe, then I think that it is logical to deduce that he's talking about Republicans. Now, why do I say that? Because think about it. Madison Cawthorn, assuming he saw Ilhan Omar, for example, do a key bump of coke on the House floor, he would immediately tweet about that, would he not? If Adam Schiff or Nancy Pelosi invited him to an orgy, would he not take to Twitter immediately to denounce their sexual depravity? Of course he would. So the reason why he deliberately refused to name names is because I think he's referring to Republicans who oftentimes are family values people, supposedly, who denounce you know sexual immorality so the fact that they're doing it themselves behind the scenes makes them look kind of hypocritical does it not so that's why i think he didn't name names if this is true but the question that i want to ask him if i were the host of this podcast i'd ask was it chuck grassley because i need to remind you all what he tweeted in 2014. out of the blue he just tweeted out windsor heights dairy queen is good place for you know what no i don't know what chuck grassley why don't you tell me is it good for burgers? Do they have really good blizzards? Uh, is there a glory hole in the bathroom? Why don't you tell me what you're talking about there? So definitely ask uh, Madison Cawthorn about that. Chuck Grassley in particular, in the event, you know, you're a podcast host watching this and you have the opportunity to interview him. Uh, but getting back to his assertion that members of Congress are coke-filled maniacs going on these, uh, you know, orgies behind the scenes, 
I don't actually care. Don't care at all. If consenting adults want to do that, don't care at all. But here's where I would take issue with it. If you're a member of Congress and you are a drug warrior who supports tough on crime laws that lead to low-level drug offenders getting locked up, but yet behind the scenes you're doing key bumps of coke, I think that's bad. I take issue with the hypocrisy, right? If you, however, are advocating for drugs to be decriminalized or legalized, then if you do drugs, I'm not going to take issue with that. If you are a uh, supposed family values politician and you're anti-gay and you denounce same-sex relationships being legal and, uh, under law and you're, you're against same-sex marriages because that's moral depravity or sexual immorality, but yet you're attending orgies yourself, which is also supposedly sexual immorality, that's what I take issue with. But consenting adults just having orgies don't care don't care at all what i take issue with is the hypocrisy right and so that's why i believe that madison cawthorn isn't naming names because they're republicans republicans are notoriously hypocritical i mean how many times have we seen republicans say one thing but do another ted haggard he's not necessarily a republican politician but he was an anti-gay pastor denounced homosexuality but then he uh i believe was busted with a gay prostitute and was doing meth uh tim murphy republican politician very very vehemently uh, anti-abortion well turns out text messages showed that he was pressuring his mistress to abort the child that they had conceived together. Now, what I find interesting about this is there's this implication that Madison Cawthorn is better than everyone else in Congress. He's not like these degenerates who are doing orgies and drugs behind the scenes. He's one of the good ones, except um, that's not actually true. In fact, his classmates would beg to differ. And this was all laid out in an article published by The Cut in March of 2021. So he'd reportedly take girls to secluded locations where he'd then try to pressure them to sit on his lap or have sex with him. In fact, 150 of his former classmates signed an open letter when he was running for Congress denouncing misconduct towards his female peers, including sexual harassment. So, I mean, if Congress is morally depraved and it's filled with these degenerates who are having orgies and whatnot, Madison Cawthorn is still one of the worst because there's a difference between consent and not having consent or pressuring people into doing something that they don't feel comfortable doing. If grown-ups in Congress, consenting adults, are having orgies with each other, nobody's getting harmed there. But if you're trying to pressure someone into having sex with you or you know you are taking them on fun rides where they're in secluded locations where they feel as if they can't say no, otherwise they'd be harmed, that's a little bit different. So you're one of the worst, Madison Cawthorn, if these reports are true, and I have no reason to doubt them. But the title of this interview was Just How Corrupt is DC? Representative Madison Cawthorn gives insider look, and this suggests that he's one of the non-corrupt politicians in Congress. He's above the fray. He's better than everyone else. Not just when it comes to sexual morality, but also just not being corrupted. Except you supported Donald Trump. Donald Trump was one of the most corrupt politicians in history. He also had a mistress. He was accused of sexual harassment and assault by numerous women. And on top of that, Donald Trump tried to steal the 2020 election even though he lost. And you assisted him with that. You're a capital uh, insurrectionist, are you not? You're a 2020 election truther, are you not? Is that not corrupt? Is wanting to end democracy being somebody who is colluding with insurrectionists 
reportedly, to end democracy in the United States? Is that not a form of corruption? It is a form of corruption, and it's one of the highest forms of corruption. But yet Madison Cawthorn, he's above the fray. He's not morally depraved. He's not corrupt. He's one of the good ones. No, Madison Cawthorn is a sociopath, and I'd argue that if Congress is as morally depraved as he says it is, not only does he fit right in, he's probably one of the worst defenders there based on what we know about him. So in the event this is actually happening, I only have a problem with it insofar as politicians are being hypocritical, right? If you're doing drugs yourself, but you think that we should lock up the peasants for doing drugs, I'm against that. If you speak out against, you know, sexual immorality or sexual deviancy, and you're in favor of family values, but yet you're attending orgies, I take issue with that because that's hypocritical. But if you're just, you know, a politician who isn't doing that, then I don't have a problem with that. But we all know the reason why he won't name names is because it's Republicans. They're hypocritical, if we can believe that what he's saying is true. Now, I think that what he's saying, there's probably some truth to it. I think that shenanigans does take place in Congress. Uh, was he invited to an orgy? Who knows? Maybe he misinterpreted that. Maybe he's embellishing. Um, either way, this is really interesting. And honestly, if you're going to say something like this, I think you owe it to us to name names. But again, don't expect him to do that because I think it's his Republican colleagues who he would never out as being degenerates because the whole stereotype is that it's Democrats, demon rats, they're the de degenerates, right? Our beloved Republicans could never do anything wrong. Marjorie Greene is a beacon of morality. Chuck Grassley definitely isn't getting his dick sucked in a glory hole at the Windsor Heights Dairy Queen. None of this is happening. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's funny to think about, uh, and the story, really, this isn't super substantive, right? To be honest, it's more of a sensationalist, salacious story. Uh, but in the event there are politicians who are saying one thing and doing another, I do think that they should be outed. I do think that the anti-abortion politicians who push for abortions, the anti-gay politicians who are sexual degenerates themselves based on their standards, uh, the drug warriors who do drugs themselves, they should definitely be outed. I think that that really is important because, you know, uh, I think that words mean something. So if you are going to espouse a set of principles, then I think at a minimum, you should try to live up to them, right? So, um, yeah, interesting, but um, it's Madison Cawthorn, so take everything he says with a grain of salt, because again, this is a compulsive liar we're talking about who's also an insurrectionist, so yeah. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is calling on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to either resign or if he refuses, be impeached. This is following the bombshell revelations about his wife, Ginny Thomas, and the text messages that she sent to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, basically coordinating with insurrectionists to overturn the 2020 election and effectively end democracy in the United States. Now, we're going to get to what AOC said specifically, but first, I want to explain why this call for impeachment or resignation is the only logical conclusion because of the threat that Clarence Thomas poses to democracy. He's proven that he is incapable of being impartial as a Supreme Court justice. So when the Supreme Court rejected Donald Trump's request to withhold documents from the House Select Committee on January 6th, can you guess who the one vote in dissent on the Supreme Court was? Well, of course, it was Clarence Thomas. He was the only Supreme Court justice who voted that Trump should be able to withhold these documents, that they shouldn't be made public. Why? Well, because it's obvious that these documents would implicate 
his wife. And now because he lost, he was the sole vote. Now we are learning just how close his wife was to this effort to overturn the 2020 election. And if you haven't heard about what she said in these text messages to uh, Mark Meadows, She's just crazy. I don't know how else to put it. And I'm assuming, given that they're married, he believes the same things that she believes. So as Grace Panetta of Insider reports, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife floated an outlandish conspiracy that members of the Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators were being sent to barges off of Guantanamo Bay to face military trials for sedition in newly uncovered text messages with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators, elected officials, bureaucrats, Democrats, social media censorship mongers, fake stream media reporters, etc., are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now and over coming days, and will be living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition, Thomas wrote in a message on November 5th, 2020, two days after the presidential election, according to the Post. In other texts, Thomas urged Meadows not to concede the election, privately trashed Republicans in Congress, rallied behind controversial lawyer Sidney Powell, and told Meadows to release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down. The Biden crime family stealing this election. The media's covering up. We want our freedom for the world. Give us our freedom, Joe Biden. So that's what she was tweeting during the election. But on January 6th, we know that the organizations that she is a part of were working with people to overturn the election. They were urging people in certain states like Arizona and Pennsylvania to pressure lawmakers to override the will of the people, send rogue electors to the Electoral College, and basically kill democracy. So this is someone who quite literally is against democracy, and she's married to a Supreme Court justice. That should horrify everyone. And obviously, because he's close to her at a minimum, that should make it very difficult for him to be impartial. I don't know about you, but if one of my family members did something bad, I know that people would suspect that I wouldn't be able to be impartial, so I would recuse myself just for optics sake, even if I could, uh, you know, feel as if I would be impartial. But he did not do that. He voted to protect these documents from getting out. He wanted to protect his wife. And it's not just that he voted to protect his wife and that he's married to someone who's an authoritarian. As Brian Tyler Cohen explains, reminder, Clarence Thomas covered up over $685,000 that his wife Jenny received from the Right Wing Heritage Foundation. In the space on the disclosure form where he was supposed to write his spouse's income, he wrote none instead. So when you consider that and the fact that he was the sole vote of dissent against Donald Trump giving these papers to the House Select Committee on January 6th, I think it's obvious to deduce that he's compromised. He's not an impartial arbiter of justice. He's someone who's trying to protect his wife. He's hiding details that are crucial about his wife. This is completely unacceptable. And let me just explain to you, she isn't just saying that we should overturn the election. She's also espousing QAnon conspiracy theories. This whole idea that the Biden crime family would be arrested I mean, this is a QAnon conspiracy theory. There is this idea that on January 6th or during the um, ceremony to swear in Joe Biden, Trump would all of a sudden start arresting people. And that's when everything would begin. She's essentially a QAnon 2020 truther. She's insane. And her husband on the Supreme Court is doing things to protect her. So it's not just that Clarence Thomas is married to an insurrectionist, and that's a little bit too close for comfort. He has lied on disclosure forms, and on top of that, he is voting as a Supreme Court justice to hide documents about his wife 
to the public. That's unacceptable. So he needs to be held accountable. And as AOC explains, this is what needs to happen. Clarence Thomas should resign. If not, his failure to disclose income from right-wing organizations, recuse himself from matters involving his wife, and his vote to block the January 6th commission from key information must be investigated and could serve as grounds for impeachment. She continues, Congress must understand that a failure to hold Clarence Thomas accountable sends a loud, dangerous signal to the full court, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and the rest, that his acts are fair game. This is a tipping point. Inaction is a decision to erode and further delegitimize SCOTUS. And she's absolutely correct. The Supreme Court is facing a legitimacy crisis, the likes of which it never has seen. The closest I could point to is the Lochner era. But this is next level. You have a Supreme Court justice married to somebody who's authoritarian, who wanted to kill democracy in the United States and actively colluded with them, instructed them to not concede the election, worked with insurrectionists, is part of these organizations taking money from writing or organizations that are instructing people to protest, uh, pressure lawmakers to uh, send rogue electors to the Electoral College. This is a dangerous individual. So if you allow him to stand at the Supreme Court with no accountability, then anything goes, anything goes. So what's the point of the Supreme Court? If they're not going to protect the Constitution, then why listen to them? We might as well just disregard everything they have to say. Now, Ilhan Omar was actually the first to call for impeachment of Clarence Thomas. She did this on the 24th. But at this point, I mean, most House Democrats are too spineless to go there. And this was explained in a Politico article where uh, they discussed how most Democrats simply believed that they should defer to the January 6th committee for now. And Nancy Pelosi called for Clarence Thomas to recuse himself uh, when it comes to cases related to January 6th, saying, I've always thought he should recuse himself, but he's already demonstrated that he's not going to recuse himself. If he were going to do that and do the right thing, he would have done so during that case where he was the sole dissenting vote against Trump handing over documents. But he didn't do that, presumably, to protect his wife and his own reputation. So recusing himself, I mean, we're so far beyond that conversation. Now we need to talk about real accountability. But even the authors of this Politico article that kind of describe the position of House Democrats they're incredibly naive. They write, there's no indication that Clarence Thomas was aware of his wife's contacts with Trump's West Wing or was influenced by them in his decision making. So you mean to tell me that the authors of this article are naive enough to believe that him being the sole vote against Trump handing over January 6th documents is just an organic conclusion he reached? Well, if he reached that conclusion on his own accord, it's probably because he agrees with his wife, that the election was stolen. But I, I think that we are adults and we can logically deduce that he knew how involved his wife was and he didn't want her to be exposed. And now we're seeing the situation where she possibly may have to testify before the House Select Committee on January 6th. So you don't think it's reasonable to think that his vote was to prevent that, prevent all of this from getting out? Really? Are we that naive? Do we have to pretend as if He's still impartial. I mean, it's ridiculous. So the only logical takeaway from all of this is what AOC and Ilhan Omar are calling for, either for his full resignation from the Supreme Court or for him to be impeached. Now, that's not to say that he's likely to resign or likely to be impeached. It's essentially politically impossible. But just because Republicans won't go along with it, just because Democrats won't even go along with it, doesn't mean that morally 
it's not the correct thing to do because that is the correct thing to do when you have a Supreme Court justice who's been compromised, who's incapable of being impartial to protect the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. This is the only reasonable course of action. You have to hold him accountable or, as she explained, to send a message to current Supreme Court justices and future Supreme Court justices that you can basically get away with anything as a Supreme Court justice. And that's not okay. So if you want to protect the Supreme Court and by extension protect the Constitution, he has to resign or be impeached. And at a minimum, House Democrats and Senate Democrats should be calling for this because if you let him get away with this, then nothing matters. You could just be openly corrupt in the United States as a government official and there'll be no repercussions. I mean, I thought that we're supposed to respect the Constitution and rule of law, and yet Clarence Thomas can work to protect an insurrectionist he's married to and nothing? No, I reject that. He should be impeached, and anyone who's not calling for it, in my opinion, is a coward. Gallup finds that trust in media is at its second lowest point ever, with only 36% of Americans having a great deal or fair amount of trust in media. And I think that there's probably a number of causal factors that's driving this trend here, but I've got to say, things like this certainly do not help. So CBS News casually announced that they hired Trump crony Mick Mulvaney as a contributor, tweeting, former OMB director Mick Mulvaney, who joined CBS News as a contributor, breaks down President Biden's tax plan on wealthy Americans. Oh, well, lovely. I'm sure that his commentary will be incredibly fair and balanced when it comes to this topic. I mean, why would a supposedly reputable news organization hire somebody like Mick Mulvaney? Need I remind you that this is someone who called COVID-19 the hoax of the day? I mean, is this someone whose commentary we can trust CBS? Really? You're going to hire this person? He also urged the public to not watch the news altogether, saying that the coronavirus news stories were being weaponized to bring down Donald Trump. Yeah, this is a thing that he actually said. He has a history of making hateful comments about the LGBTQ community. He also admitted that Trump's phone call with Zelensky was a literal quid pro quo, but then he said, get over it. And if you look at his track record overall on PolitiFact, he is incredibly dishonest, lying most of the time. But yet, CBS News thought, that's the person who we think we should hire. Definitely, he's qualified, he's reputable. I think that our viewers can trust Mick Mulvaney. I mean, who made this decision? Who thought this was a good idea? It's laughable. You might as well hire Alex Jones at this point. Now, you might think, okay, well, maybe CBS News is legitimate and this is one mistake that they've made. But no, this is actually part of a broader trend where they're trying to turn into Fox News. And I don't know how else to describe it other than the Fox Newsification of CBS because they're very clearly heading in a more far-right direction. And this was all broken down in a really fantastic and lengthy thread by Matt Negrin on Twitter who explains, CBS News almost exclusively books Republican guests. CBS News instructed its journalists on January 6th not to say it was a coup or insurrection, but instead to mention all the peaceful protests. Also, CBS News show Face the Nation platformed Republicans who lied repeatedly about the 2020 election. CBS News's political director was a Republican press secretary for six Republican senators and never had a job in journalism. CBS News aired a false right-wing smear that illegal immigrants are spreading COVID. CBS News endorsed Republicans' false description of their voter suppression, deliberately calling it an effort to tighten state voting laws. And also, one thing that stood out to me as a leftist was during the 2020 presidential primary campaign, CBS News reporter Ed O'Keefe sat down for an interview with then-President 
presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, and everyone remembers Bernie Sanders' platform. He was running unapologetically in favor of Medicare for All. Now, Bernie Sanders was explaining, look, there's some disagreements between myself and the Democrats here, right? But the Republicans are far worse because they straight up just want to take health care away from Americans. And Ed O'Keefe, who, for whatever reason, follows me on Twitter, which I don't know why. I don't like him. I hate him. He should probably unfollow me. But he responded to Bernie Sanders, pointing out the fact that Republicans want to take health care away from Americans by saying, well, isn't that what you want to do? No, you think, wait a second, that's bizarre. Bernie Sanders is running on the platform of making health care free at the point of service. So he wants everyone to have universal access to healthcare that's free for everyone and yet you're saying he wants to take away healthcare well the point that Ed O'Keefe was trying to make was that well because you want to give everyone free healthcare you're taking away their health insurance therefore you getting rid of private insurance is basically the same as republicans taking away healthcare getting rid of the affordable care act what's left of it wait what what logical person reaches that conclusion the answer is no reasonable person comes to that conclusion unless they're paid to do propaganda at the behest of the republican establishment and that's what cbs is doing so this is nothing new them hiring mick mulvaney is a microcosm of a broader issue and if you're asking why would cbs do this well, it's because this is a business, not a news organization, and Fox News is a ratings powerhouse, and more ratings means more revenue from advertisers. So CBS shifting to the right is simply a business decision, nothing more. Their goal is not to deliver the news in an impartial and objective way. Their goal is to increase shareholder value. Again, this is a business. This is a problem with late-stage capitalist society where everything is commodified and you can't even get the straight news without some ulterior motive. They want to make money, and the way you do that is to pretend to be Fox News. You be Fox News light, and that's what they're doing, and it's gross. But the problem with this is that you know they are more insidious. Everyone knows that Fox News is a conservative machine, right? It's part of... The Republican Party establishment. But when your, you know, loved ones, your your grandparents, for example, they want to seek out what they believe is less bad news, they might turn on CBS and not even realize that they're getting right-wing talking points. So people are getting radicalized by watching CBS and they might not even know it. They might think that CBS isn't feeding them right-wing propaganda, but that is actually the case, more and more so, because they don't put that front and center, right? The things that they do, the way that they're more, they more covertly deliver right-wing propaganda to viewers, it's not out in the open. Whereas Fox News, they kind of just lay it all out there so you know where they're standing. But CBS News is less honest about that. But I think that them hiring McMulvaney is them kind of saying, hey, this is who we are now. We're just a far-right news organization. We've kind of given up on trying to be a straight news outlet. We're just more propaganda for the right because we want money. It's truly morally reprehensible, but this is where we're at, and people need to know about this and know that CBS News cannot be trusted because they're just right-wing propaganda at this point, pure and simple. You might think that that's me being uh, not as charitable as I should be, but that's not an oversimplification. This is a business, and this business wants to make money, and the way you make money is pandered to reactionaries, and that's exactly what they're doing, and their behavior over the years is indicative of this trend that we're seeing now, and this is just kind of the logical conclusion to their shift to the right, hiring McMulvaney, somebody who is a liar.
So this week, the House Oversight Committee held a hearing on Medicare for All. Now, this, to me, as a longtime advocate for Medicare for All, was really encouraging to see. It's bittersweet in the sense that I know that we're not close to actually codifying Medicare for All into law, but the fact that there's still momentum is really important because it doesn't matter what the political situation is. We need to continually push in this direction because Medicare for all is objectively the correct policy in the United States. Now, there were a number of progressives that spoke at this hearing and we'll get to what they said, but I've got a point to Katie Porter. Uh, she broke out the whiteboard and as usual, she makes a brilliant case for Medicare for all. Now, what she chooses to focus on is the benefits to savings, specifically when it comes to administrative costs. And I know about this argument. This isn't new news to me, but the way that she presents it predictably is phenomenal. Take a look. We heard today about the cost of Medicare for all, but there's a cost to letting insurers, paperwork, patients, and providers to death, and that cost of inaction is $200 billion on administrative costs. Now, administrative costs waste money, but they also waste healthcare workers' time. A recent study found that a majority of doctors, 56%, support a single-payer healthcare program. Why? Because today, doctors spend only one quarter of their time with patients. What are they doing with the rest of their time? paperwork. 90, and I want to also, I want to add, not only would 50 to 56% of doctors support Medicare for all, but patients would have the most choice under Medicare for all. The health insurance coverage with the biggest network is Medicare. No private insurance comes close. 99% of pediatric, non-pediatric doctors participate in Medicare. So I want to recap. Medicare for all would save and many on administrative costs, $200 billion a year. Medicare for All would give patients the most choices, 99% of non-pediatric providers, and Medicare would let doctors practice medicine. Not surprisingly, given these three things, what do we get with Medicare for All? Better health outcomes. And that's why I support Medicare for All, because I support patients over paperwork. Now, these are things that I don't think most Americans know about. They don't know that doctors spend more time doing paperwork than they spend time with patients. And when you put this in front of people, when they know the details, they support Medicare for all. There was a point in time where Medicare for all had majority support. In fact, Democratic Party primary voters in 2020, they agreed with Bernie Sanders on the policy substance over Joe Biden. But because the media told them that Joe Biden was more electable, they sided with him. They made a strategic choice in their views rather than voting based sincerely on what they want from a policy standpoint. So Americans already know this is the logical choice. And when it comes to networks, I mean, how many people have stories about someone that they knew who was rushed to the hospital? They took an ambulance and they went to a hospital that was out of network. Well, just because it's out of network, well, you get a gigantic medical bill because your insurance company will not provide that uh, or won't pay for that. But with Medicare for all, you don't think about these things. It's just free at the point of service. If you're in America, you go to the doctor and it's paid for. You don't have to worry about the paperwork. You don't have to worry about the bill. Medicare is going to be the one that is the sole insurer. They're the single payer. And that's why this makes sense. Now, uh, Katie Porter goes on and she explains specifically why there is more savings when it comes to Medicare compared to private insurance companies. And this, in my opinion, was really important. Dr. Collins, what percentage of revenue do private insurance companies spend on administrative costs? You know, between about 17 to 18% of, of spending in private insurance plans. So if I pay my insurance company 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen dollars go to administrative costs. What about Medicare? What do they spend on administrative costs? You know, that range is about you know three to five, three to five percent. Three to five, three to five percent. About three to five percent. Right here. And if we look at just billing costs, just billing and insurance costs, Medicare is at 1%. Wait, private companies spend 17 times more on administrative costs than Medicare? What are private insurance companies spending on that Medicare is not? Does Medicare spend hundreds of millions of dollars on television advertisements like private insurance does? Dr. Collins? No. Does Medicare spend millions of dollars on stock buybacks to shareholders? No. Does Medicare um, spend money on marketing? Private insurance likes to put its name on stadiums and PGA tournaments. Is there a Medicare arena? No. Does Medicare spend $23 million on executive pay like private insurance companies do? No. We know how much it costs to run a high-quality health insurance program. One dollar. Out of $100, research shows that Medicare spends 1.1% on administrative costs. We spend $4 trillion on healthcare every year. We could save $200 billion on administrative costs with Medicare for All. And those savings, they could go to expand Medicare. We could spend that money to let patients see dentists. We could let, spend that money to let patients pay for hearing aids, to help older adults afford eyeglasses, to bring down the cost of prescription drugs, to finally pay mental health professionals for the work they do. Instead, all this money is wasted. We're not talking about paying to keep the lights on in operating rooms or improving the quality of care. All this money is used to, through pay big insurance to push paper. It's death by 200 billion paper cuts. The way that she makes these presentations is just second to none. She really is a skilled order. I love this. So yeah, these things make sense. Medicare isn't spending billions and billions and billions on administrative costs because they're not doing stock buybacks. Medicare, uh, they're not paying for advertising. This is something that is a service that is provided to citizens, right? They're not looking at profits. They're just providing a service. Whereas these private insurance companies, the goal isn't to provide people with insurance and healthcare. The goal is to make money. The goal specifically is to increase shareholder value. And that's why private insurance is so broken. Because if you have that profit incentive in the industry of healthcare, it perverts the entire thing. In healthcare, the number one goal should be caring for people and saving lives. But because we have a disgusting for-profit health insurance system with private insurance companies ruling everything, that's not the way that things happen. And so there was a study that was released just before the pandemic that showed that if we had Medicare for all, not only would it save billions and billions, hundreds of billions in administrative costs, as Katie Porter pointed out there, but it would also save 68,000 lives. And so you can make the case that Medicare for all is a small tax cut for businesses, because if they don't have to you know, provide their employees with health insurance, that's more money that they could spend you know, growing their business. There's a lot of ways that you could pitch Medicare for all, administrative cost savings, as Katie Porter did. But to me, saving tens and thousands of lives every single year is reason enough to move to Medicare for all 
immediately. Now, other lawmakers pitched Medicare for All, and they did so in a number of ways. And I want to get to kind of just the general summary of the way that they described uh, needing Medicare for All. Uh, so this is from Brett Wilkins of Common Dreams, who explains Representative Cory Bush, who chaired the House Oversight Committee hearing, said that Americans deserve a health care system that guarantees health and medical services to all. Congress must implement a system that prioritizes people over profits, humanity over greed, and compassion over exploitation. Bush, a former Black Lives Matter organizer, continued, The systemic racism perpetuating health inequities cannot be overstated. Black women are three to four times more likely to die during childbirth. We are more likely to have rates of asthma and cancer from generations living next to pollution centers. We are more likely to have foregone routine screenings and medical appointments for a real fear of having our pain dismissed. That's why my colleagues and I are coming through in force for our first Medicare for All hearing since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, she added. This policy will save lives. I want to make that clear. I hope this hearing will be one more step forward in our commitment to ensuring everyone in this country, and particularly our black, brown, and indigenous communities, have the medical care they need to thrive. Representative Rashida Tlaib noted that the COVID-19 pandemic exposed just how broken the healthcare system is in our country. Millions of people across the country know that passing Medicare for All is long overdue, she added. In the richest country, our residents should not face financial ruin, continue to be sick, or even die because they lack adequate coverage and care. We need Medicare for All now, and we will not stop fighting until we have it. This hearing ignites the reality that we must act now. All excellent points, and there were more progressive lawmakers that made really fantastic points. Also, Adi Barkin uh, responded to this hearing talking about how it's absurd that in the richest country on the planet, we have to resort to GoFundMe to pay for our medical bills when every other developed country has healthcare free at the point of service. So why haven't we done that yet? It's not because we can't afford it. It's because there's a lack of political will. And more importantly, there's overt corruption in this country where private insurance companies, they pay politicians to maintain this broken system because they want to profit off of it. So, you know, in the near future, I don't see Medicare for All being a thing, but the momentum that we have for Medicare for All is encouraging to see. It's going to be very difficult. I mean, Joe Biden, he ran on a public option and he hasn't brought up health care basically at all since he's been president. So if we can't even get a public option, when are we ever going to get Medicare for All? And I think that if we continue to push in this direction, vociferously make the case for Medicare for all, it's inarguable. The American people agree with us. And so just because it's politically infeasible currently doesn't mean that we shouldn't push for it. This is objectively the right policy. Other countries, our neighbor north of the border in Canada, they've proven to us that this is the right policy. We just have to push because it's a really easy case to make. Americans understand that health healthcare being free at the point of service is a no-brainer. So it's just a matter of electing the right politicians who aren't corrupted that agree with this common sense position. So kudos to everyone who spoke at this hearing and a special shout out to Katie Porter, who once again, whenever she pulls out the whiteboard, makes a phenomenal point. And, you know, she's someone who's very persuasive. So for her to be an ally to this fight is really encouraging to see. And yeah, we just have to keep pushing, even though currently, you know, it's easy to get bogged down. It's easy to feel hopeless. But there are millions of Americans in this country who agree that Medicare for all is the only solution to this broken healthcare system. So keep that in mind. Know that we're winning the rhetorical battle. Now we just have to win the political fight that's ahead of us, which is going to be admittedly difficult and seemingly insurmountable, but we can do it. In every single developed country who has some form of uni universal healthcare where it's free at the point of service, it wasn't an easy battle. This is a difficult political fight, 
But as long as we keep going and we don't give up, I think that it is possible in the future. Maybe not in the near future, but it is possible. So a young activist named Magnolia Mead saw Joe Manchin in public and she did what any good citizen who's concerned with the survival of the human race would do. She confronted him because he's one of two senators standing in the way to any progress when it comes to climate change. And this is a time where scientists are practically begging lawmakers to begin the transition to clean, green, renewable technology. And you have just two people standing in the way. Joe Manchin is one of them. Now, Joe Manchin doesn't care that the world is burning because he's a coal baron and he still feels as if there's more money to be made off of destroying the planet. So Magnolia knows this and she decided to confront him about this and actually specifically call him out on him being a coal baron. This is absolutely phenomenal. Take a look. CC report, the planet is warming and we're if we don't, we're, we're, if we don't keep it under 1.5 degrees, New York City is going to go underwater. Your state keep is going to go underwater. I'm not going to be quiet. I've listened to you enough. I've heard you own a coal plant. And you will never represent your constituents fairly because all you care about is your greed, your corporate greed. I'm a student activist. I am terrified about my future. I'm terrified that my family. I'm terrified that my family is going to die. I'm terrified that my family is going to die from the climate crisis. Good on her. Good on you, Magnolia, if you're watching this. That was really encouraging to see. Basically, if you see Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema, you have a responsibility to confront them. They should be ashamed to show their faces in public because what they're doing, them being obstacles to just a little bit of progress when it comes to climate change, that could spell doom for all of humanity. The United States, I, there's no reason why we shouldn't be a global leader when it comes to clean, green, renewable technology, solar, wind, hydro, but we're not because of corrupt ghouls like Joe Manchin. So I really, you know, uh, commend her for doing that. Now, it was kind of difficult to hear, so I did transcribe uh, some of this. So he told her to be quiet, but thankfully she refused and she said this. She said, I'm not going to be quiet. I've listened to you enough. We all have. I heard you own a coal plant and you will never represent your constituents fairly because all you care about is your greed. Damn, that is awesome to hear. I, I mean, Joe Manchin is so shamelessly, cartoonishly corrupt that I don't know how he can look anyone in the face. But he looked her in the eyes and he said, I don't own a, co a coal plant. Excuse me, you don't own a coal plant? What? It's not just an egregious lie, but he has used his political career to pad his own pockets, to benefit his own coal company. Just a couple of days ago, the New York Times released a bombshell study about the ways he specifically used his political career to make his coal company more profitable, to benefit himself. And yet he's going to say he doesn't own a coal company. Now, the a uh, New York Times article that I'm referencing is locked behind a paywall, but I do want to go to a summary from Salon because it breaks it down. And the level of corruption here, I mean, you can't not deduce after reading this that Joe Manchin should spend the rest of his life behind bars. That's how corrupt he is. Merrill Fair of Salon explains, Senator Joe Manchin, the most prominent decision maker on American energy and climate policy, has spent decades raking in revenue from his private coal business. A recent investigation by the New York Times illustrates what's been described as a stunning portrait of political corruption, detailing how the conservative Democrats' political decisions have benefited his financial connection to a West Virginian power plan, calling into question the ethical 
line the senator is towing between business and politics. Manchin's involvement with the Grant Town Power Plant began in 1987 when he helped clear several environmental obstacles that allowed two developers to build the plant slightly outside Manchin's district. The Environmental Protection Agency was concerned the plant was too close to another coal-burning plant in the area, which could potentially produce disastrous impacts. The Democrat then went into business with the plant through a handful of shifting electricity companies and contracts, which the Times describes as a bit like handling a set of Russian nesting dolls. A company owned by Manchin provided the Grant Town Plant GOB, an acronym for Garbage of Bitumenus, a mining byproduct of coal and rock which can be used to produce electricity. The Grant Town Power Plant has been the only customer for over 20 years, so a portion of the plant's electricity revenue, which comes from the electric bills paid by Manchin's constituents, goes directly into the senator's pockets. Because GOB is less energy efficient than pure coal, West Virginians have lost millions of dollars in excess electricity fees over the years. The Times investigation highlights how Manchin's political agenda has aided the power plant over the years. Reporting reveals that Manchin championed tax credits that aided the plant and was involved in enabling a rate increase that hiked electricity prices for West Virginians, therefore benefiting himself economically through the plant's increased revenue. Manchin has also been a vocal dissenter of the Environmental Protection Agency's proposed limits on power plant emissions. So we're not just talking about a simple conflict of interest here. We're talking about Joe Manchin literally using his political career to benefit his company and himself. All to the detriment of humanity. So sorry, Magnolia, you do have to be afraid that your family will die due to a climate disaster because Joe Manchin is a coal baron and he still wants to make more money from dirty energy. So sorry, we all have to suffer because of this one ghoul who should be in prison because of how corrupt he is. And that article doesn't even take into account the cronyism with regard to his family and the way that his uh, political career helped his family. It's truly disgusting. But that's the state of American politics, where you have politicians so corrupt, they don't care that their corruption could literally lead to the demise of humanity and end the habitability of the one planet that we have access to. He doesn't care. He wants to make money short-term profits above the long-term survival of our species so good on magnolia for confronting him but unfortunately I, I think he's been confronted enough to where if that would have moved him something would have changed by now but he doesn't care that he's the one obstacle it's gross it, it, i don't even know what to say about it but that's where we're at so you know okay if he's not gonna budge then the least that we can do is make his life a living hell when you see him in public confront him Thank him for causing the demise of humanity, potentially. Let him know that, you know, he's going to be looked at as a villain throughout history if we're able to survive. But, you know, these politicians, they, they couldn't care less. They are sociopathic. I don't think that Joe Manchin is even having trouble sleeping at, at night. I, I just, I don't think that. They're so cartoonishly corrupt and evil that I don't think he cares at all. It's just about money. So, yeah, good on Magnolia. Uh, these things need to be celebrated because if we can't get them to budge when it comes to policy, at a minimum, we can make their lives at least a little bit more inconvenient. And that is something that I find at least some enjoyment from. Well, I'm sure that most of you watching have already heard about this by now, but on Monday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Don't Say Gay Bill into law, which effectively bans teachers in Florida from even acknowledging the existence of LGBTQ plus people in grades K through three. Now, we don't know what the parameters of this bill are. In actuality, it was left purposefully vague. It says grades K through three. 
but it leaves the door open for higher grades. Also, you know, proponents of the bill like Ron DeSantis will say, you know, really, this is about you not teaching our children to be gay and indoctrinating them into a gay or trans lifestyle. But one, that's already not happening. Two, you can't do that. So what exactly is going to be the effect of this legislation? Well, as I stated at the start of this video, it's going to force teachers to play it safe and just pretend like gay people and trans people don't exist. And one Florida teacher spoke out and explained what this means for him as an educator in the state of Florida going forward. I have a child in kindergarten right now. I know exactly that my, my child has two teachers, one of which has a daughter at home um, and is single. The other is married and has four children. I, I know everything about their lives because my kid tells me. Absolutely. You are 100% correct. Um, that's what we do as educators. We build relationships with our kids. And in order to build relationships, you talk about your home life. You talk about what you do on the weekends. That's building community. I It scares me to death that I am not going to be able to have these conversations with my children because they're going to ask me what I did on the weekend. I don't want to have to hide that my partner and I went paddle boarding this weekend because yeah. then they ask, well, what does partner mean, Mr. Bernard? And, you know, I, I'm worried. Can I tell them what it means? I'm also worried for my kids. I have a little girl this year who has two moms and the kids are curious about her two moms. They want to know about her two moms. You know, if they come to if they go to her and ask her about her two moms and she doesn't know what to say, they're going to come to me and ask me. And then, you know, so what do I do? It just it opens up uh, for parents to really take some legal action against the schools and teachers. And I, I am afraid uh, for myself, my colleagues and my students. How do you expect to navigate that that situation? Because for, for as a parent of a young child, I want to celebrate difference and I want my child to celebrate differences as well and to learn about them. Absolutely. You know, it's hard to navigate, uh, especially when you have words uh, that are uh, injecting, indoctrinating. When you have those words coming from, um, you know, our state legislators and, our, you know, our higher government, uh, those words, uh, those are synonymous with some very hurtful words. And so when we think of when I think about navigating this bill, um, you know, I, I am going to be mindful, but I'm going to follow my kids' discretion and what they want to discuss. And if they ask me, I'm going to be true and honest to them because it's who I am. And he may very well lose his job if he is indeed honest, which is horrifying. Teachers don't know what they can and can't say because of this bill. It's a form of censorship, and the GOP just spent all of last year screeching about cancel culture and how they're against censorship, but now all of a sudden in 2022, we're seeing them promote censorship because of the resurgence of homophobia. Now, the question is, how do you sell the American population on homophobia when they've largely moved on and they embrace same-sex marriage and LGBTQ plus rights mostly? How do you do that, and why would you want to do this? Will you do this by selling homophobia as protecting children. You don't just come out and say, well, I'm against same-sex marriage, point blank. No, you sell it as, I think really we have to protect children from these gay people who wanna groom your kids. Uh, and they've learned from the CRT debate, right? They've learned that you can get people to care about culture war issues if you frame it in a certain way. And protecting children is something that is going to resonate with a lot of Americans for good reason. We all want to protect children, right? But that's why they do it. And the reason why they're doing this is because if they stay, you know, focused on these culture war issues, 
then they don't have to focus on healthcare. They don't have to talk about how they don't have a plan for education or how to fix poverty in the United States or climate change. They could just focus on these issues that pull people in. You don't have to think much about them. Most people have an, an opinion of LGBTQ plus rights. So, you know, it, it's an easy political win for them if they can actually adequately foster homophobia once again. And that is what they're doing. So because they found a way to reintroduce homophobia to the masses again and sell it to them in a persuasive way, they've effectively ended their tactical retreat because they lost the gay marriage debate. So we haven't heard the GOP talk much about gay rights in the past five years. I mean, they focused heavily on trans issues, but there's a reason why they're talking about this again. And it's because they've ended their tactical retreat on gay rights and journalist mark joseph stern broke this down in a really interesting thread on twitter he writes last week i wrote about the gop ending its tactical retreat on same-sex marriage and turbocharging its anti-gay agenda there's a cultural element to this too we're seeing the party's media figures attempt to resuscitate the kind of casual homophobia that seemed to be waning it's not just the resurgence of republican claims that gay people are groomers who indoctrinate and molest children it's the return of nasty drive-by homophobia the casual mockery of same-sex couples that works hand-in-hand -hand with anti-gay legislation. It seems to me that casual mockery of gay people and their families is on the rise among the conservative media figures whose job it is to restore a cultural environment in which anti-gay legislation is deemed acceptable. We are backsliding on gay rights with truly shocking speed. Bottom line, the surge of anti-gay legislation cannot be separated from the rise in casual homophobia among the GOP's media figures, who are striving to create a cultural environment in which homophobic laws can flourish once again and it's happening with lightning speed. And that should alarm everyone who cares about LGBTQ plus rights. That should alarm everyone who has a loved one who's gay or bisexual or trans or non-binary because this is what the GOP has chosen to focus on, right? And they are absolutely disciplined in their messaging. So now they've chosen to go all in on homophobia again and this is what they're doing. Why? Again, it's because if they focus on this, if they distract you with this, they don't have to focus on the fact that they don't have a plan to fix our broken healthcare system or education system. They don't have to focus on the fact that if you're a millennial in this country, you can't buy a home. You basically can't move out from your parents' house. They don't have to focus on all of that. Just stay bickering about these culture war issues that society has largely moved on from because we're going to reintroduce these issues and frame it a little bit differently. So people who previously weren't susceptible to homophobic rhetoric now are opening their minds to it. Notice how we taught you about critical race theory and how that's indoctrinating children. Well, we know another way that the libs are indoctrinating children. They're indoctrinating them into the gay and trans lifestyle. That's what they're trying to sell to people. I mean, Joe Rogan, he's notoriously transphobic, but for the most part, he hasn't been homophobic to my knowledge. But yet, when he talks about the Don't Say Gay Bill, he used their framing. He said, well, look, I think people don't just want you to groom their children. That's pretty simple, right? Well, who wants to groom children? But the idea that this is a Don't Say Gay, Right. Because you're 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 saying that ages, uh, you know, first grade to third grade, that you shouldn't be bringing up these subjects to them. I, mean, I think a lot of people are saying, no, I just don't want you grooming my kids for whatever your ideology is. Notice how this standard isn't applied to heterosexual couples. When you watch a Disney movie and you see a prince and a princess kiss, do you think, uh oh, 
that's grooming my child because if they're kissing and they can be married, that implies that they can also have sex. And I don't want my kid learning about that. That's grooming. No, it's because this stems from the homophobic belief that gays are predators. Gays are overly promiscuous and their relationships exist specifically for sexual purposes. There's no friendship there. There's no romance there. It's not like gays are starting lives together. It's just all about sex. It's all homophobic. So they're ginning up homophobia and they're selling homophobia to the masses under the guise of we need to protect children. And it's the most disgusting and insidious form of homophobia. It might not be the case that they're overtly going after same-sex marriage, although they will if they can successfully overturn Roe v. Wade. But now they're reigniting this fight about whether or not kids knowing that gay people exist means that kids are being taught to be gay. You can't be taught to be gay or trans. You either are or you aren't. I mean, growing up and still till this day, in basically every single movie or TV show that I watch or book that I read, there's always at least some reference to heterosexuality. I've never been tempted into the heterosexual lifestyle, not even a single time in my life. So if it's the same way for me, then obviously if you're heterosexual, you can't be tempted into the gay lifestyle. Kids are going to find out that gay and trans people exist. They're gonna find out that their friend has two mommies or two daddies. They're gonna find out that their teacher is actually a trans woman. That's a part of life. But these reactionaries wanna stop any progress that we've made over the course of the last five years because they don't wanna actually see society progress when it comes to other elements of life, healthcare, education. They wanna hold us all back by distracting us with these culture war issues. And it's gross, and I wish that people would see through it, but they don't see through it, they're falling for it. And my hope is that leftist allies who are straight push back vociferously against this new wave of homophobia that we're seeing. Because if not, then it's not just gonna be these don't say gay bills that we see. We will actually see tangible gains that we've made be erased. The Democratic Party has gotten a lot of bad news this week when it comes to the midterms, and none of this is surprising. There's a new article from David Siders in Politico today where he explains that the gap between Democrats and Republicans has widened since October. And I've got to say, we all kind of expected this to be the case because Joe Biden has allowed just two senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, to obstruct the entirety of his agenda, and he hasn't really done anything to push back against them. We've heard reports about how the relationship between the White House and Kirsten Sinema is strained, but I mean, you have to show us that there's some sign of life there. You have to show us that you're willing to go to bat for these policies that you supposedly care about. But all we see is Joe Biden letting Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema run roughshod over him. And it's hurting him. It's hurting Democrats overall, because if people don't feel as if they see this concrete difference in their lives, if they don't feel as if there's a material benefit to Democrats being in power currently, they're not going to go out and vote. They're not going to stand in line for hours to vote if Republicans taking control of one house isn't really going to meaningfully change their lives. So we're in this predicament where Democrats are running out of time to act. The window of opportunity is closing 
And there's seemingly no sense of urgency, but let me get to the article published in Politico today by David Siders. He explains, at the end of October, Republicans held an 11 percentage point advantage in voter enthusiasm. By January, that margin had ticked up to 14 points. Now, according to the most recent NBC News poll, it has swelled to 17, a massive advantage that has foreshadowed devastating losses in Congress in prior years. It's beginning to look like nothing is going to bail the party out this year. The last time the enthusiasm gap was this wide in 2010, Democrats lost more than 60 seats in the House, but now they're confronting a supercharged Republican electorate too. In an NBC poll, about two-thirds of Republicans say they have a high level of interest in the midterm elections compared to half of Democrats. The party's current enthusiasm deficit is a reversal from 2018 when Democrats retook the House. So November will most likely be a bloodbath for Democrats. The good news is that there still is time, believe it or not, to turn this around. The problem is that as you wait, the longer and longer that you don't take action, significant action to change this, momentum kind of builds up in the Republican Party's direction. Now, we'll get to what the solution is. Now, it's not a perfect solution because at this point, you know, when you when you pass a policy that impacts people, there is an amount of time that it takes for them to really feel the effects of that. So it depends on what the policy is. For example, when Biden was first inaugurated, you know, they got done the uh, $1,200 checks or $1,600 checks. It was supposed to be $2,000, but they, they got down a smaller amount now, even though it was disappointing to people because it was a lesser amount than what was promised. That money made a huge difference in people's lives relatively quickly. So they have to pass some sort of policy that makes a really quick difference in people's lives in order to kind of spark this enthusiasm that's missing currently. Now, if you're just a voter and you don't live in a state like mine where we get our ballots mailed to us and we do mail-in voting, I live in Oregon, but if you have to take time out from your job potentially or go and stand in line at a poll for hours on end or drive use up resources if you don't live close to a polling station if you're in one of these voter suppression red states then you're just not going to do that you're going to think look i mean my life hasn't really changed significantly with democrats in control so if republicans retake the house is that really going to make a difference mm. I'm just going to stay home. This is the thinking of people. So you have to make it worthwhile for them to get up and vote. But Democrats have not done that. And it is hurting them so bad. Now, there's a poll about 2024. It's way too early to really talk about 2024 in a meaningful way. But there's a line from the pollster here that's really significant that I don't think that Democrats have truly reckoned with. As Alex Griffin of Mediaite explains, a new Harvard Caps Harris poll shows former President Donald Trump handily beating President Joe Biden in a hypothetical 2024 general election matchup. Trump would beat the sitting president by 47% to 41%, with 12% undecided if the vote were held today, the poll found. Harvard Center for American Political Studies and the Harris poll released the findings exclusively to the Hill on Monday. According to The Hill, Vice President Kamala Harris would lose to Trump by an even wider margin, with Trump trouncing the sitting VP 49 to 38%. God damn. Mark Penn, the co-director of the Harvard Caps Harris Poll Survey, told The Hill the poll's finding of Trump's early leads over both Harris and Biden speak less to the former president's popularity and more to Biden and his administration's current challenges with voters. That's really important. So you think, okay, maybe because Trump hasn't been visible, his popularity has increased, but the reason why Trump would win is because Biden isn't winning over enough support or not maintaining support, I should say. 
really what you have to keep in mind is election will always be determined by turnout. Now, whenever turnout is higher, that disproportionately benefits Democrats. Whenever it's lower, Republicans and their loyal base of psychopaths, they win, right? So they count on a lack of enthusiasm on the Democratic Party side. So because there is such a huge gap in enthusiasm between party bases, well, Trump would win again. And that's after everything, after the insurrection, after the lies, he would win again if the 2024 election were held today. So what does this tell us? This tells us that Biden has not given the American people enough reasons to come out and vote for him. You can say that your Democratic representative is doing a satisfactory job, but really what Biden does or doesn't do is a reflection of the broader party. So if he fails, all Democrats fail. Now, AOC had some words of wisdom that I don't think that the Democratic Party establishment is going to really take into account. But what she says here is essentially common sense. Biden can now do a lot of things unilaterally via executive order, and it would change people's lives in such a meaningful way that they'd actually be able to possibly turn things around. It's not a guarantee at this point, right? Not a guarantee. But would it help potentially shift momentum away from Republicans? Without question. So here's what she said in an interview with New York Magazine. If the president does pursue and start to govern decisively using executive action and other tools at his disposal, I think we're in the game, she said. But if we decide to just kind of sit back for the rest of the year and not change people's lives, yeah, I do think we're in trouble. So I don't think that it's set in stone. I think that we can determine our destiny here. So what she's saying makes sense, right? All you have to do is bust out that pen and get to work. Do what you're not able to accomplish legislatively. Now, we've heard an abundance of excuses from the Democratic Party establishment. Well, you know, there's two votes that we're lacking in the Senate, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Now, I'd argue that that's not really persuasive. One, because Biden hasn't even used his bully pulpit to exert pressure on them. And even if he did, there'd always be some other holdout. If it weren't Manchin, it would be John Tester, right? So there's always going to be this revolt from the conservatives in your party. What matters is how you use your bully pulpit as president. And, you know, if it wasn't just these two holdouts, then it'd be the parliamentarian not allowing you to include something in reconciliation, uh, immigration reform, for example. So what Biden needs to do is take decisive action, as AOC is recommending, and do things that you can do legally to help Americans. Now, there's a number of things that he can do. We know that Joe Biden can cancel all student debt. He can do this. Well, at least all student debt that's held by the federal government, right? Now, the federal government holds the overwhelming majority of student debt. So if he were to sign an executive order wiping out all debt, forgiving all debt held by the federal government, for most people, they'd see their debt erased entirely. Do you know what that means? They'd be able to start lives. Perhaps they'd be able to move out of their parents' homes, purchase a car, purchase a home, stimulate the economy. I mean, if I saw my debt wiped out, that would change my life dramatically. Immediately like that, my enthusiasm for Joe Biden would go through the roof. Now, his administration has bragged about how nobody has had to make a payment on their student loans since he's been in office. Now, that's evidence that, well, these arguments about canceling student debt, disrupting the economy are bullshit because nobody's been making payments. So all you have to do is cancel that, and all of a sudden you galvanize millions of young people millions it's an easy win the parents 
of these student debt holders who don't have debt themselves, they'd be able to see their kids start lives. This would make a giant difference. You can remove cannabis from Schedule 1. It's ridiculous that that's the case. You can move us in that direction so we can start at least decriminalizing marijuana at the national level. But Biden isn't doing that. There's so many things that he can do via executive orders to move us towards renewable energy. But he's not doing that. He can't do a Green New Deal via executive order. Let's be clear about that, right? But there are steps that he can take. And he's not doing that. There's so much that he can do with just his pen. He could pick up his pen and immediately make a huge concrete difference in people's lives. And I'm not saying that that's definitely going to turn things around. But would it help? Without question. Without question. The people who you just erased the debt of would think, wow, well, if my debt was just erased, what else good things can Joe Biden do uh, if he still had both chambers controlled by Democrats, perhaps? You know, they don't understand the fundamentals of it. Maybe they don't know that he signed an executive order. But just overall, getting them excited to vote for Democrats would make a huge difference. But Biden, at this point in time, is not doing that. So it's insane that there's this iceberg dead ahead they've seen the warnings they know that it's going to be a bloodbath in november if they don't do anything and they're doing nothing we have nancy pelosi who could be trying to gin up support for newer progressive candidates endorsing anti-abortion conservative democrats under fbi investigation like henry cuellar over progressive up-and-comers like jessica cisneros the Democratic Party leadership has just given up, and Joe Biden seemingly has just given up. I mean, is he trying to do anything? He, you know, floated this new billionaire tax. Joe Manchin immediately shut it down like that. So are you even trying to fight? Show us that there's a sign of life somewhere in the White House. Show us that you care about democracy and you don't want this authoritarian far-right party to retake control of the House or the Senate. You have to do something, but we see nothing. And then what's going to happen inevitably is Democrats will get wiped out in November. And do you want to know who's going to be to blame? Progressives. Oh, you know, they pushed us too far to the left. And now, you know, moderate voters, they just didn't go for that. No, actually, progressive policies are incredibly popular. Americans agreed, by and large, with Build Back Better. So if you couldn't get Build Back Better, where's the initiative to pass standalone bills universal pre-k do something that's the takeaway it's pretty simple fucking do something at least try otherwise you're going to see a bloodbath the likes of which we haven't seen since 2010 and it could be worse we don't know but i mean we're in this climate in america where republicans are so fucking insane that they should never be able to win under any circumstances but still with how bad things are in this country the democratic party's base has to have a reason to get out and vote. Just knowing that the Republicans are a threat to democracy isn't enough. They need to feel the difference on their wallets. They need to feel the difference in their lives. So you have to consistently keep them enthusiastic. Let them know that you're fighting for them. But Joe Biden and the Democratic Party largely has failed. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook.
You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.